All right, we are going to get started in an official way this morning with Lesson 13 as we are wrapping up Pilgrim's Progress. It's been a wonderful time together with you guys. And um, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we are going to jump into a lesson that we're calling Two Are Better Than One. Two Are Better Than One. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity for us to be together uh, to learn from a brother who is now with you, John Bunyan, and, uh, and to look at the scriptures that he has laid out for us uh, as the backdrop of his allegory. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see that it is true that two are better than one and that we have great need for the body of Christ and we receive great encouragement from our brothers and sisters. We pray that we be encouraged together this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we uh, spent some time talking about the fact that a Christian can and Christians do get depressed. And in our material last week, we had Christian to hopeful even talking about subjects like suicide. Um, and yet we cannot merely pluck up the heart of a man and just just do the very best we can in order to deal with these type of things. We need to cry out to the strong for strength. That is, cry out to the Lord for our strength. And, um, and so our uh, pilgrims escaped the castle of despair last week. They came to the delectable mountains, were encouraged by four shepherds. And then they were given uh, some things before they headed out from the Delectable Mountains, the shepherds gave them a note, which was directions if they lost their way. They were told to beware of the flatterer and not to sleep on the enchanted ground. And they are going to need that note and that warning as we're going to see in our lesson this morning. Let's uh, do remember uh, as we are reading through that this is an allegory. Allegories are different from just regular stories. It's different from parable even. Parables tend to have one main message, whereas allegories, uh, each symbol normally is pointing to something of significance. And so we're going to track along our, uh, as our pilgrims are going to run into some characters, uh, ignorance and turn away, and they're going to meet someone called Little Faith and then Great Grace and also the flatterer, and they're also, we're going to end our time as we talk about the enchanted ground. So let's talk about, first of all, section 104, met by ignorance. As they are walking along the way, they meet someone named ignorance from the country of conceit, and, um, and there's really much to commend this traveler. Uh, he knows uh, the word of the Lord. He knows the Bible. He's a good liver. Uh, that is, he seems to be honest, he prays, he would fast and tithe. Um, and he also left his own country to head towards the celestial city. And so there's a lot about ignorance to commend him. But ignorance represents not someone who doesn't know anything, but he's ignorant of the true gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. Um, this is what he's ignorant about. And as hopeful and Christian dialogue with him, 
he's not interested in going that direction, doesn't seem to be open to their exhortations. And so they decide to leave him alone for a while and they'll return back to speak to him when it seems like his heart perhaps is more open. Uh, or as they say, we'll talk to him anon. Some lessons we can derive from this section. Ignorance is not lacking of knowledge, but conceit against right knowledge. And so you can have people that know a lot of things and yet be ignorant of the gospel. And a person can fulfill their religious duties and make great sacrifices and yet be wrong when it comes to the foundation of Christ. So ignorance follows from behind. And then there's another individual that they run into. This one is called Turnaway. As they enter a very dark lane, they see this man who is bound with seven cords and being ushered back by seven demons to be thrown into the byway to hell. And as would be expected, this causes Christian and hopeful to tremble. Um, Byway is from the town of apostasy. And on his back, there's a paper that says, Wanton Professor Indamnable Apostate. And this is definitely a scary scene. And, um, And we see some lessons from this scene as well that there is no other sacrifice for sins if Christ's finished atonement is rejected as insufficient for one's own sins. Um, turn away, it would seem, has turned away from Christ and His sacrifice. Ken Paul says in his commentary that to fall away is to persist in sin, disobedience, and ultimately rejection of the gospel. To fall away is not to fall into sin. Christians will fall into sin. It's to fall into sin and then to decide that Christ's atonement on the cross is not sufficient for one's sins and to ultimately reject the gospel. As Ken Poles goes on later to say, there is no plan B on God's agenda. If one falls away, there is no other gospel, no other Savior, no other salvation. Jesus is exclusive. How does turning away occur? There's lots of ways that people can turn away from Christ alone. Um, They could grow disillusioned with the church and slowly start to turn away from Christ's church. Maybe I had a friend who used to go out witnessing with me, and then in college, um, his college professors began to turn his mind away from Christ. Um, Growing complacent, in our or apathetic in our worship or deciding that the means of grace available to us really aren't as important as the bible says they are Um, excusing rationalizing sin Um, most of the the individuals that i've spoken with that i would describe or that seem to be apostate that have ultimately rejected christianity it's interesting the pattern of how many of them have fallen in to some sort of immorality um, and then conveniently reject Christ on the back end of, of their justification of sin. Um, again, we want to be clear, and we're going to see this in the dialogue that comes forward, that legitimate Christians can fall into sin, but an apostate is someone that rejects Christ and his sufficient atonement for sin. Let me just say number three, 
as a lesson, you need not fear obsessively about apostatizing if you have placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. If you've placed your faith in Christ and you're confessing your sins, you need not fear apostatizing. Um, let me read from Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians 1.4, the phrase, who gave himself our sins. Luther says, quote, The genius of Christianity takes the words of Paul, who gave himself for our sins, as true and efficacious. That means effective, like an effective cure. We are not to look upon our sins as insignificant trifles. On the other hand, we are not to regard them as so terrible that we must despair. Learn to believe that Christ was given not for picayune and imaginary transgressions, but for mountainous sins, not for one or two, but for all. Not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly ingrained. In other words, we don't, as Christians, we don't treat sins as insignificant, but neither do we need despair because Christ died for mountainous sins, not just one or two, but all sins, not just sins that we used to do, but sins that are ingrained and hard to get rid of. That's what Christ did. Amen. And I love the way Luther puts that. So that, that raises now a, a question and a story that comes to Christians' mind. After they see ignorance and this fearful scene of turnaway, Christian raises a story that he had heard about one little faith. And perhaps the dark lane and turnaway, turnaway's fate reminds Christian of this story. Um, who himself slept, just as Christian had slept at Peaceful Harbor, but he slept in a place called Dead Man's Lane. Let me just tell you, if you ever come to a place called Dead Man's Lane, don't sleep there. Um, little Faith is said to be a good man. In fact, five times the allegory calls him a good man from the town of Sincere. However, three sturdy rogues named Faint Heart, Mistrust, and Guilt come galloping with speed, catching little faith off guard, and they bully him and threaten him with language, and little faith's uh, face turns white as a clout, or white as a sheet, would be kind of our phrase, and, doesn't, and he doesn't have power to, fly, to fight or to fly. And these three come from a place called Broadway Gate, so faint heart comes up and basically threatens him and then mistrust forcibly steals his bag of silver from his pocket and guilt clubs him over the head and basically leaves him bleeding uh, for dead. But then they all scurry away when they think that there's another pilgrim coming down the road and they think that that pilgrim is actually the one great grace with good, confidence, or good con confidence and so they run away from him. And, um, but in this allegory, faint heart represents, seems to represent those who are weak in faith and spiritually unprepared for trials and temptations. And we do see this phrase, little faith, used several times in the scriptures. In the book of Matthew, you see it four times, all referring to the disciples, the twelve, at different points in the journey. Jesus speaks to them of, oh, you of little faith. Now, notice uh, that little faith he rests in a place that he should not be. He should not have been at Dead Man's Lane. 
And it is here that he's overtaken in a trespass, it would seem, and then robbed of a good conscience. So it seems like what he's robbed of, there's several things that he could be robbed of, but at the very least, he's robbed of a good conscience. And then he's beaten. And then, uh, and then good grace is thought to, uh, to come, come down the, the path. Um, notice, it, it was a great disadvantage to little faith that he was traveling alone. Christian and, and, uh, and hopeful, they're together, and they're going to fall into several things together. Um, but faithful at one point was alone, and he fell asleep at the peaceful arbor, lost his, his, his uh, role, right? Here, little faith is alone, and he gets bullied and beat by these rogues. Um, let's look down at 107. What exactly was it that little faith lost? Well, um, he lost his, what is called his spending money, um, and this would seem to be his, his good conscience or um, his stoutness of heart. He's now, these three rogues would represent things that now are there with little faith. He's filled with guilt, mistrust. We've seen mistrust, by the way, before. On, uh, Christians saw mistrust in Timorous running back the other way earlier in our story. And, um, and so he's lost these things. They've been stolen from him, but what has not been stolen are his jewels. In fact, I don't see anywhere in the text, you guys can tell me if I've missed it, I don't see anywhere in the text that um, little faith actually had the jewels on his person. Um, They seem to be safe because they're safe at home, and we'll get to a little more of this in a second. But he also di- didn't lose his role or his certificate, which would represent his assurance of salvation. And faithful or Christian tells us that he didn't lose that because he was so cunning and so strong. It was just in God's providence that these three didn't find it. And so he's, his, his assurance of salvation is left intact. His jewels are left intact while he's been robbed of his silver. This seems to point to the idea that uh, that little faith, his, his salvation is safe with God. No one can pluck us from his hands. Uh, it's safe with Christ. Um, there are, you know, principalities, powers, no one can separate us from Christ. Um, and yet, nevertheless, Christian goes on throughout the rest of his journey as the story is told, kind of crawling in his faith. And whenever he runs into another pilgrim, he always goes back to the day that he was robbed. And he tells the story again about how he was bullied and, and robbed and, and by these three. And even though he still have his, has his jewels secure, and even though he still has his role, which he should be looking at, that's what Christian was told when he was given the role, to look upon it, to find peace. It doesn't seem like he looks at these two treasures very frequently, he is frequently just reminding himself of his losses. And so uh, it seems that little faith um, is overwhelmed by a morbid preoccupation with his losses rather than the things that he still possesses. And that's something for us to, to keep in mind as Christians that 
Um, it's not uncommon to find believers that they, they, their mind will turn in the same rut and will go back and rehearse things that have happened to us in our past. Maybe it was sins that we were overtaken by. Maybe it was people that sinned against us. And we'll just rehearse that over and over and over. And meanwhile, we've got our assurance of salvation right there in our breast. We've got our inheritance secure for us in heaven. And, um, and yet we'll rehearse these things over and over. Well, section 108, there's a discussion of the value of little faith's uh, jewels. And as you move into this debate, it's a little bit confusing some of the, the questions that Hopeful raises and then the response that Christian gives, I don't know about you, but my, my, my passes on this section, I, I found myself confused. Why is Christian so angry? And, and, and why are, what is it exactly that they're debating? And what seems to be the question that young Hopeful seems to be raising is this, since little faith was so foolish to put himself in harm's way, that is, dead man's lane, uh, it's a wonder that he didn't part with Christ. In other words, hasn't little faith demonstrated that he is related to Esau? I think that's the nature of the debate here, is that Hopeful is saying, you know, he really should not have been a dead man's lane in the first place. And he kind of deserved what he got. And isn't he now proven by his fruit that he's of the same nature of a guy like Esau? And would it not surprise us if he just sold his inheritance? Um, and so here's how Hopeful raises the inquiry. But it is a wonder that his necessity did not put him upon selling or pawning some of his jewels. And Christian's reply is described as tart. That basically means he's not happy with the way that this question is being raised. In fact, here's what he says to Hopeful. He says, you talk like one whose head is the shell to this very day, which means you are like a newborn chick with the egg still on its head. That, you know, which is, ooh, that's quite an insult. <laughs> And, but he, he's speaking to Hopeful as if you are, are you such a young Christian that you're going to question little faith salvation when he clearly has little faith? And the operative word is faith. He has faith. Um, so a Christian begins to make a few points. He says, in all that country where he was robbed, his jewels were not accounted of. In other words, even theoretically, if he could sell his jewels, it's like monopoly money in the world. The world isn't going to buy. Uh, these are spiritual denominations that the world could care less about. Number two, he did not seek the kind of relief the world would have to offer. He's not seeking relief here. He's still holding fast to his inheritance in Christ. And number three, he would not be admitted to the celestial city without his jewels. And, and that would have been worse to him than the appearance and villainy of 10,000 thieves. So Christian is pointing out actually the fruit of faith that he sees um, in this story that, that while uh, 
little faith was robbed of a good conscience and put himself in harm's way, he's still holding fast to Christ with little faith. Now, Ken Pulse remarks, you know, the coin purse, uh, it represents good conscience or spiritual peace of mind. Um, This purse can be filled or unfilled, and it was indeed, indeed plundered. But in the allegory, our jewels are secure. They are safe with Christ. They represent our heavenly reward, or I think more properly, our inheritance in heaven in Christ. As it says in 1 Peter, uh, that we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved where? Reserved in heaven for you. And so there's an inheritance that's reserved there, that's untouchable. That's the Peter's point, and that seems to be Christian's argument. Uh, by the way, this, this whole dialogue comes from John Bunyan's own testimony. If you look on uh, the top of page 8, we'll read a little bit of his own quote. He says, quote, It was glorious to me to see Christ's exaltation and the worth and prevalency of all his benefits, and that because of this, now I could look from myself to him. And should reckon that all those graces of God that now were green in me were yet but like those cracked groats and fourpence halfpennies that rich men carry in their purses when their gold is in their trunks at home. What he's saying is, I, Bunyan had been looking in himself for certain evidences of his salvation and, and looking and seeing himself wanting Sometimes his conscience was good, sometimes his conscience was bad. Sometimes he was walking well, sometimes he wasn't walking well. And he found himself up and down and up and down. But then he realized, wait a second, my inheritance is safe at home. Just like rich men walk around with their purse, they don't bring their gold out into public and market. If you open up their purse, what they have is what he calls... Cracked groats and four pence half pennies. It's basically you know, English monetary coins, right? But their, but their gold is secure in their trunks at home. He goes on, he says, Oh, I saw my gold was in my trunk at home in Christ, my Lord and Savior. Now Christ was all, all my wisdom, all my righteousness, all my sanctification, all my redemption. And so Christian's argument is little faith's treasure is in Christ. Um, And his treasure is eternally secure. Um, So little faith did not earn or deserve his treasured inheritance. And that point is being made partially by the the point that even his parchment, his, his assurance of salvation, was secure not because of his own cunning, but because of God's providence. So then hopeful is more forward as he presses the argument. At the towards the bottom of page eight of your notes. Hopeful says, why are you so tart, my brother? Esau stole his birthright, and that for a mess of pottage. And that birthright was his great jewel. And if he, why might not little faith do so too? Um, Esau forsook Christ. Little faith put himself in a similar situation. May he not for also forsake Christ? This aggravates Christian even more. 
And so then he goes on into this long comparison between Esau and Little Faith. Esau's belly was his God. Little Faith was not so. He keeps saying Little Faith was not so. Little Faith was not so. And basically argues, um, therefore it is no marvel if he sells his birthright and his soul for all that for the devil in hell. Uh, but faith, little faith is not of this type of character. Uh, Though faithless ones can for carnal loss pawn or mortgage or sell what they have and themselves outright to boot, yet they, have, uh, yet they that have faith, saving faith, though but a little of it, cannot do so. Here, therefore, my brother, is your mistake. So basically, as he's talking about Esau, he's saying this is someone who's rejected the one for all sufficient sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Whereas little faith, um, even though he has little faith, cannot fall into that because his jewels are secure, and this is your fault. Uh, This is your mistake. Hopeful says, I acknowledge it, but yet your severe reflection, it almost made me angry. Oh, boy. These guys are really getting into it now. Christian says, Why, I did but compare thee to some of the birds that are of a brisker sort who will run to and fro in untrodden paths with shells upon their heads. I just called you a little chick with a shell on your head. But let's have, let's continue this debate, you know, as brothers, and all shall be well between you and me. So then uh, they begin to talk about great grace, which... um, uh, Bunyan writes, for the doctrine of free grace believed is the most sin-killing doctrine in the world. And here Hopeful continues to talk a little bit like a neophyte. He basically says, we'll kind of summarize here. He's like, you know, if I were in little faith's situation, especially knowing that great grace is just down the road, I would have plucked up my heart like a man and I would have gone into battle. And fought these rogues and these bullies. And I would have only pulled back at the very last moment. Christian basically responds saying, you know, it's pretty easy to say what you'll do when you're looking at the battlefield from afar. But when you're in it yourself, a lot of times you have a different perspective. One of the commentators I was reading this week was making note of boxers, how that you'll have these braggadocio matches before a match. And um, once you actually get in the ring, it's a different story. Um, and, and so he's, he's, he's gently rebuking Hopeful here, like, be careful. And he actually says, you know what, I've been in those kind of battles. I went up against Apollyon, and I was fully armed in the armor of God, and I barely got out of there with my life. And then he basically says, even great grace... Um, you know, with all of his battle uh, experience, uh, when he goes into battle with people, yeah, he would probably take these guys, these three guys, but guess what? These guys' guilt and mistrust and faint heart, they're just little apprentices and cubs for the king of the bottomless pit. And all they got to do is whistle and the devil shows up at their beck and call and even great grace, when he's going mano a mano with Apollyon, it's going to be a tough battle. So hopeful, don't be wishing so much for blood. 
Don't be hoping, wishing that you could get in there and prove your mettle. Because truth be told, um, without the Lord, we aren't going to make it just by plucking up our manhood. Uh, at some point, I, I forget where in the text here, he says, we need to be careful not to be tickled at the thoughts of our own manhood, which is a great phrase. Um, yeah, be very, very careful. And so, so there is some gentle rebuke and there is some, some argument that's going on here. Hopeful uh, does seem to listen to the, the rebuke of his brother. Um, and so that's kind of a summary of, of, of what happens. And, and so just to kind of summarize what's happened to this point. Now n- notice ignorance has been following along in the background Turn away this apostates, which, which raises the trembling and the discussion of little heart in the, in the first place. Then they talk about little heart. They have a debate about whether little heart can abandon his jewels. No, because they're secure at the right hand of the Father where Christ is making intercession. And then there's a, a gentle discussion. Well, you know, not so gentle discussion and rebuke of hopeful in kind of his green kind of approach to this kind of a question and desire for Christian blood, so to speak, to get out there and battle with sin. And it's interesting that right on the heels of this discussion, they now run in and they get captured by the flatterer. They've just been happening, you know, Hopeful's just been talking about, you know, if it were me, I would be totally game and I'd be ready for the battle. And then notice if when you talk about the flatterer, Christian and hopeful, they're followed by ignorance. Now, remember in our allegory or in allegorical literature, ignorance is both a character and an attribute. And so what Bunyan's telling us, ignorance is following them because they still are ignorant of what's to come and some of the traps before them. And so um, they come along the road, and um, the path begins to get confusing. It seems to cross the way and head out as straight as a path before them. Both seem to be straight. I don't know if, if you guys do much hiking, but there's been many a time where I've been out hiking or backpacking, and you, you're on the trail, and sometimes you'll get into some faint trails and you're looking at your topographical map, and another trail will come up, and it'll seem like it's running, and you're kind of like, which way do I go? And it can be confusing. And it's always good to pull out your topographical map and take a look, try to get a feeling for where you are. And um, I just got us off on a wild goose chase up at Taquiz Canyon a few days ago. Um, anyway, they don't take out their instructions and their map. Um, but someone comes up to them uh, while they stop to consider there comes up to them a man who is black of flesh, but covered with a very light robe. And this is a reference to 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 13 to 15, uh, about Satan's servants that come masquerading as angels of light. This is a man of darkness, but he's wearing an external robe of light. Uh, and you see that in 2 Corinthians 11. So this man... <clears throat> Uh, in the white robe, tells them to follow him because he's going there. Uh, Does this sound familiar? It sounds like vain confidence. And as they walk, no doubt this man is praising them for their successful journey, probably listening to their tales of danger and adventure and congratulating them for their progress. 
perhaps uh, disparaging other travelers who have not been as faithful as they've been, nor nearly as pious. And then the text tells us, quote, by degrees they turned and turned them so that from the city uh, that they desired to go to, that is, in little time their faces were turned away from it, yet they followed him. But by and by, before they were aware, he led them both within the compass of a net in which they were both entangled, and they knew not what to do. Notice the language of ignorance. They weren't aware of what was happening. They get turned around by degrees, and then suddenly they're in a net, and they have no idea what to do. Finally, the robe falls off of this angel of light. He's revealed for what he really is, a servant of darkness. And then, wherefore, they lay crying, crying like men, uh, and they could not get themselves out. This comes out of uh, this whole being caught in a net comes from Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So then they, they bemoan their air and forgetfulness, and a shining one comes to them with a whip of small cords in his hand. I don't know if I, if, you saw, if I saw a shining one with a whip, I'm not so sure that would comfort me, but this is clearly a reference to Christ, or at least Christ through the Holy Spirit, and he comes and begins to ask some, some questions like, what are you doing here? Um, did you not read the note that was given to you by um, the shepherds? And they said, we forgot. That's literally what they said. And then they say, um, okay, well, didn't you heed the warning? about the flatterer well he spoke with such fine speech okay so he basically what what the lord does is he um i want to get the wording here he rent the net and let the men out i just love that these guys got caught in their own foolishness just like little faith and christ comes along and he cuts the net open and he lets them out and then he begins to speak to them and, um, and he has them lay down, takes the cord, chastises them, beats them. <clears throat> and then uh, when he's done doing that, it says uh, he, he bid them go their way. Oh, and he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Uh, then this done, he bid them go on their way and take good heed to the other directions of the shepherds. So they thanked him for all his kindness and went softly along the right way. So they're chastised um, for uh, forget their forgetfulness, um, for being fooled by the flattery. And no doubt, this is a blow to their pride, right? They had just been having this conversation, and Christian was, I think, in the right in trying to encourage hopeful to not just pluck up the heart of a man, but to be humble. And now they've gotten caught, and they're, and they're chastised. I'd like to encourage all you children, whenever you're chastised by your parents, to thank them for their kindness. And um, I think that would be a good, good way to approach our, our discipline from, from parents. Um, so, so we have the flatterer here, and, um, and so there's just some lessons for us to take to heart. You know, one is, is we, we need to be careful when the devil whisp in our, whispers in our ears it's, it's interesting how ingrained sin and pride is in our hearts that even when we're meditating on the gospel, I don't know about you, there's times where it can come to my mind like, Mike, 
you are just really starting to get the gospel now. You know, you get the gospel, I think, better than a lot of people today. And you're understanding your sin better and understanding Christ's righteousness and imputation better probably than most. Boy, you're an amazing man. An amazing pastor, too. And I listen to that, right? Even good doctrine can be whispered into our ears in a way to trap us, to start to compare ourselves to people who are of little faith or faint-hearted or feeble-minded, and then to exalt ourselves and begin to look down upon others. And so we need to be careful of this. And I, and I love the lesson that we, that we see in this section, that two are better than one. These guys, and definitely they were together, but it's a three-stranded cord that cannot be broken, and that's Christ, right? I can be with my brother, but I need to be, I need to be with Christ that really is that three-stranded cord that will not be broken, that will rent the net and let us out. Let me, let me do talk about something that does come up in this section. I don't know if you realize it or not. But John Bunyan, when he talks about the flatterer here, he uses a phrase called black of flesh, which has caused um, uh, many people to, not many, but some people to critique Bunyan at this point. And so I want to bring up uh, some thoughts on this. It's in the footnote on the bottom of page 12 that, uh, you know, this is understandable. There's understandable discomfort with Bunyan's description here given modern sensibilities, especially today. Uh, Bunyan is writing at the height of the transatlantic slave trade, which makes some critical of Bunyan on the score. And we certainly do not want to defend our theological heroes merely because of their doctrinal pedigree. Nevertheless, recall that Bunyan had just used the phrase, white as clout or white as a sheet, referring to little-faced skin, making the point that he was filled with fear and cowardice. So I do not think that Bunyan is referring to either character skin color to make a racial point, but is in fact developing his biblical-based allegory. Um, and I'll just like you, you guys may not know this about me, but I am a former English teacher and an English geek. In fact, I was first introduced to Pilgrim's Progress in college when I was reading this for my degree. Um, I believe we need to practice modesty in how we read uh, modern sensibilities back into older literature. Uh, Yet neither should we as Christians shy away from critiquing the past as long as we're using Scripture and Holy Spirit-filled humility as our guide. The Bible itself does not shy away from exposing even its most cherished characters like Noah, David, Peter, to name a few. Remember, Paul confronted Peter to his face because he was refusing to have table, table fellowship with Gentiles. Um, so it should not shock us to find that our brothers and sisters in church history, or today for that matter, are marred by sin. Let us not, however, be guilty of wife battery, that is, abusing Christ's bride without giving each other the benefit of the doubt, without due deference to our own depravity and short-sightedness, without reference to the bride's imputed righteousness and daily opportunities for fresh exchanges of love and forgiveness, lest we unwittingly align ourselves with the accuser of the brethren. 
If there were more time, I would share with you my love and appreciation for the likes of John Owen, Alada Equiano, or otherwise known as Gustavus Vasa, C.H. Spurgeon, whose lives and testimonies overlap and contribute to my understanding of issues of race and slavery in the church. And I'd also want to direct you guys to uh, our YouTube channel. I did a Q&A video in uh, July of last year entitled, What Does God Think About Race, Racism, and Justice? And uh, it's about a 30-minute video I'd commend to you. Anyway, I bring that up only because uh, as I was doing my research on this section, that that issue does come up. And, um, and so I wanted to give you some, some fodder to think about that as you read Bunyan. I personally have no issues reading and benefiting from Bunyan, but neither do I think this guy is without faults. So take that for what it is. Feel free to talk to me if you have other questions about that particular issue. So back on uh, the last two points, which we're not really going to have time to get into, met by atheists, I'd like you to study that on your own. Uh, that comes right after the flatterer. I, I think the big message that we can get from the section on atheists is they don't fall in with the atheists the way they did with the flatterer. And it's acknowledged that partly because they're together, they're able to answer. I think it's hopeful that it actually begins to be taken in by his arguments at first. But hearing Christian's response helps him. And then when they get to the enchanted ground, similarly, hopeful wants to go to sleep. The one who wanted to pluck up the heart like a man and get right into battle three times in a row, he has to be helped by his older brother, faithful. And they begin to tell each other their testimonies. In fact, next week, Jonathan Jones is going to get into hopeful's testimonies, which is one of the best sections in the whole book. It is incredible, so I encourage you to come back. Um, they use the, the telling of the testimonies to keep them awake in the enchanted ground. Let me give some, uh, some lessons as we close our time together. First of all, there's a lot of things we could talk about. I'm just going to give a few. The weak believer as contrasted with the apostate. Um, is that the order that you guys have this in? Do you guys have that, number one? Okay. Um, they're clearly... Christian points out a clear difference between a backslider um, and someone who is a counterfeit Christian. The weak believer uh, is someone to backslide implies that you've gone forward, that you've placed your faith in Christ, and yet you have been bullied and by your sins or you've come underneath the bullying of guilt and um, I've known many a brother and sister that has fallen into things that would not be becoming of a Christian, and yet they're still just grabbing out for Christ. And then they fall again, and they're grabbing out for Christ. That is completely different from a fellow who I've, I had the opportunity to spend a couple, three times with a guy um, who claims that he walked the Christian walk for 20 years, decided that it was just complete nonsense, and that if anything he learned from Christianity, it robbed him from the freedom of expressing his sexual perversion, and, and rejected Christ outright. In fact, takes pride in the fact that he um, helped his mom deny her faith on her deathbed. That's an apostate. 
Um, that is not what I see from believers here at Cornerstone that struggle with their sins and get back up and then struggle with their sins and they're just reaching out for the robe of Christ. So there's a difference between the two as I think Bunyan points out in our text. And by the way, number two, Jesus is very compassionate towards those of little faith. When you see the way he speaks to his disciples, it's, oh, you of little faith. These aren't harsh rebukes. These are kind encouragements. We see in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, where Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, but comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak. Feeble-minded literally means small-souled or undeveloped identity. Someone who has an undeveloped identity in Christ. Uh, Be patient with them. Receive one who is weak in the faith. And by the way, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. You know, I've, I've got a sneaking suspicion. It's not just a suspicion. It's true that there are some people in our churches that people might look at as very, very weak individuals and the world might look at them and make fun of them because they're just so weak-minded and, 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 and always worried about things, but yet they're clinging to Jesus and yet they're going to wind up in heaven and Christ is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, as they're dressed in Christ's righteousness when some of what the world looks at as like the strong and, and the confident ones aren't going to be able to hold a candle to these weak brothers and sisters. And that's just the upside-down nature of the gospel. There's other things here that you can read on your own. We're, we're pretty much out of time. Next week, come back. You are going to be incredibly encouraged by Hopeful's testimony. I'd encourage you to study it. And then come on back and join us next week. If you have uh, questions, feel free to come up Afterwards, I'd be glad to talk, talk with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the encouragement that we see in this section that it is true that two are better than one and we need the body of Christ. We need pastors. We need shepherds. We need instructions. And yet, we thank you, Lord, that you are so compassionate upon those that have little faith and are weak. And really, when it, truth be told, all of us are weak and we need to cry out to the strong strength we thank you lord that while there are things in this life that may be robbed from us even at times a good conscience we thank you that our inheritance is secure reserved in heaven for us and that lord jesus you always are at the right hand of the father interceding for us your own we thank you that our righteousness is secure in you our holiness is secure in you We pray, God, that you would help us to walk in modesty and humility this day and to grow in understanding our righteousness in Christ. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys, so I'll be glad to take questions.